Welcome to the Counter Vultures Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. This is the Reporters Roundtable. This is a uh, discussion that occurs every Wednesday between current and former journalists talking about some of the biggest headlines that have occurred within the last week. Why are we doing it? Try to give you those an idea of maybe some of the stories that might be impacting uh, the real estate market or the economy uh, sometime near in the future. So who do we have this particular week on the podcast? We have Mr. John Fackler. John used to work over at the South Florida Business Journal. He covered white-collar crime as well as publicly traded companies based in Florida. Right now he does consulting and marketing when he's not cooking on his brand-new cast-iron pan. What's going on, Mr. Fackler? Not too much. Got a full belly from that uh, skillet steak. Very good. I'm all set to go. This is your first. Is this your first cast iron pan? Uh, yes, it is actually. It was the first uh, experiment that went well. Interesting, interesting. You'll have to keep us updated because cast iron pans can be they can be a little challenging uh, at first until you really sort of get the uh, you know the knack of it. Yeah, I definitely smoked up the joint, but it was, came out good. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. Who else do we have? We have John Groose. John was a journalist for north of 25 years, mostly in the state of Florida, including a gig at the Tampa Tribune, where he covered economic, banking, uh, anything financial related. Right now he has his own public relations marketing firm called Groose Communication. What's up, John? Hey, Peter. Great to be back. Great having you. Now, while John is cooking in his cast iron, you always tend to go diving. What's the latest on the dive scene here in uh South Florida. Where'd you go off to uh, this particular week? Actually, uh, actually, I did a different activity. This uh, I participated in the uh, Fort Lauderdale Marathon Half Marathon. I ran the half marathon, and it was um, one of the first live events. Um, and it was socially distanced and super well organized, and um, a lot of fun. So, hats off to the organizers for that. How how do you socially distance a marathon? What did everybody have to wear like um like inner tubes around themselves? Well, <laughs> no, they had everybody had to wear masks and they started uh they did a staggered start, so it'd be twenty people at a time and they were distanced uh by six feet apart and every ten seconds a wave of twenty runners would go. And um yeah, that's how they did it. And it was it actually worked really well. I was a little skeptical at first, but they did a fantastic job. And, and what was the vibe like? One of the interesting things about marathons is the vibe. You have everybody handing out the water. You have stuff like that. I'm assuming because of social distancing and touching things, that probably was a little bit different. So how, how did that work while you were going through the um, uh, through the process? Well, I mean, you know, they they were very careful. Everybody's had masks. I mean, they did have um, water stops along the way. But, I mean, you know, um, you, you weren't supposed to grab from the tables, you know. Um, so you had okay. to take the water from vo- volunteers and they had gloves and, uh, I mean, so they, they did, uh, they did quite a great job. I mean, uh, there were 3,500 runners. So, you know, uh, wow. considering all in all, it was, uh, it was very well organized and, you know, so I felt, felt perfectly safe. I mean, um, and it wow. was a good opportunity to get out and actually, you know, participate in something that was you know, that hasn't been put on for a very long time, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. That, that's encouraging news. Um, and then who do we have as our rotating journalist this week? Well, we have the pleasure of having a gentleman who's a senior reporter over the South Florida Business Journal. He's been a, a journalist for north of 20 or close to 20 years, including 17 years since over the South Florida Business Journal. He's also written three published novels. Who is that? Brian Bandell. What's going on, Mr. Bandell? Hey, I'm glad to be back. Uh, thanks for inviting me. There's uh, still a lot of news going on here. It's wonderful that we're running marathons while the rest of the country is all snowed in. They just 
they're out there on their snowmobiles. So true, so true. Thank God we're down here in South Florida for the time being. Um, uh, uh, hopefully things are going to be improving. So, so guys, um, as we've been doing for our podcast, um, uh, I like to open up with the COVID numbers, give everybody an update, what's really sort of going on uh, statistically uh, for the COVID numbers for the state of Florida as well as the Tri-County South Florida region. So before I get into that, let me just remind the audience, uh, we look for straight talk and cursing or salty language is permissible. What our strategy will be is we're going to talk about three um, stories uh, we'll kick them around. We'll discuss them. We'll take a break. We'll talk about another three stories, kick them around, take a break. I'm then going to ask all the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction about something might be coming down the pipe. And then finally, we'll get into the point where uh, you, the listener, you can submit a comment and we're going to read them on the air and we're going to sort of discuss that. If you do want to send an email and a comment, uh, whether you liked us, you disliked us, compliment, criticize, ask a question, anything, send an email to inquiry at condobultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condobultures.com. So that being said, let's talk COVID numbers. State of Florida as of today, being the, the 15th of February when we're recording this, although the podcast will air on the on Wednesday the 17th, we have 1,830,000, um, roughly 1.831 million uh, Floridians who have basically been um, uh, confirmed cases of COVID in the Tri-County South Florida area, which is Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County, 685,700 cases in the Tri-County area. And by the way, all these um, uh, statistics are coming from the Florida Department of Health COVID-19 dashboard. It's updated daily. These are the official numbers, uh, whether you agree with them, you disagree with them, um, these are the official numbers. So 685,700 cases in Tri-County, South Florida, with 389,000 600 cases in Miami-Dade, 183,200 in Broward County, and 112,900 in Palm Beach County. So if you look at proportionally, uh, South Florida, Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County can represent about 37.5% of all cases. And if you've been listening to this podcast regularly, you've seen that number or you've heard that number has been going down and down and down. We are decreasing on the number of confirmed cases in South Florida proportionally as well as the number of deaths. Now, what do we got in Dade? 21.3% of all the cases in Florida are in Miami-Dade County, 10% of all the cases are in Broward, and 6.2% of all cases are in Palm Beach County. Now, on the death count, 28,934 people have died in the state of Florida from COVID, according to the state of, to, uh, according to the health officials, 9,800 in South Florida, unfortunately. So chances are within the next week or two, probably by March, we'll have over 10,000 dead in South Florida from COVID with 5,185 in Miami-Dade, 2,266 in Broward, and 2,349 in Palm Beach County. Overall, South Florida represents about 33.9% of the deaths that occurred in the state of Florida. And as I mentioned last week, um, proportionally, we're going down in there was a report last week on um, uh, WLRN, which is the NPR affiliate, you're seeing cases go up in the panhandle of Florida. So so somebody else is doing worse, but we uh, statistically seem to be doing a little bit better, even though we got close to 10,000 people dead um, uh, down here. So anybody want to comment about COVID numbers, how it's being handled, uh, vaccines, anything like that before we get into our stories? Well, I think the, the fact that the vaccine is here has, has helped reduce the uh, number of hospitalizations which will eventually show up in the number of de- uh, reduce the number of deaths. You know, it's, it's a, obviously people would go in the hospital and some of those, some of those die and some of those come out. So, but at least because it's going to the senior population, mostly, even though people are getting it, the seniors, the seniors are the most likely to be hospitalized and the most likely to die. So at least that'll, it's reducing the burden on the hospital uh, system. So as they, as they get more vaccine, hopefully we'll lessen the worst outcome from this. And, you know, guys, talking about it, um, so, so if you think about it, what's the population of Florida? What is it, 21 million, 22 million, something like that? Yeah. 
Okay, so let, let's just say let, let's say 22 million. Well, um, uh, there was a we've had 1.8 million confirmed cases, so we're getting close to 10 percent of the people have had it. And then in addition to that, if you look what's going on with the with the vaccinations, there was a report that I saw that said close to nine to 10 percent of Floridians have been vaccinated, primarily the healthcare workers, um, uh, older adults. Uh, who live in Florida, as well as people visiting, things like that. So between those two, it sounds like we got close to 20% of Floridians of the 21, 22 million people, um, a ballpark, not immune, but basically have had a COVID situation. And what does Dr. Fauci say, the, the, the director of the, uh, basically the, the one who's been speaking on it uh, with the CDC, he's saying like 70 to 80%, so um, whatever that's worth. So it sounds like about roughly 20%. Of Floridians, um, uh, we're still far from the seventy to eighty percent for herd immunity, but uh, you know that's at least encouraging. I would say. Yeah. Anybody have any? Just keep in that? mind that having having had a previous bout of COVID without being vaccinated does not yeah. provide you the same level of protection because we get new strains. So if you had the original strain of COVID and you come in contact with the UK strain, you could catch the UK strain and get sick because it's different. So so, but having the vaccine will probably protect you against that strain as well so it's so it gives you a little bit of protection but not as good as the vaccine great point. i also think great the, numbers, point, the numbers are kind of numbers are kind of skewed because as you know we have such a high uh large population of senior citizens in florida compared to other states i i saw a i saw a statistic today saying really only four percent of um of uh, citizens in the united states have been have gotten both both um the uh, the first vaccine and the, and the booster so that's four percent is that's not a great number uh, nationally. So I think it's still slow the rollout, and um, you know we'll see what happens here going forward. But it's uh, to me it's still lagging. So I have a different opinion on that. Yeah. Well, you know, interesting. Again, I was listening. I have NPR in the background all the time uh, during the day. They reported that today, Colombia, the country of Colombia and South America, they received their first doses of the vaccine, fifty thousand. 50,000, that's all they have. And we're talking about, John, what did you say, 4% of the U.S. population has been vaccinated? So just to kind of compare and contrast, it's not a great situation, but, you know, wow, what's going on in South America? So, um, guys, let's go ahead. We'll get to our first story. Uh, Brian, we're going to start off with you with story number one. This is coming out of CNBC. Uh, Let me read you the headline as well as the first uh, uh, three points, and then I'll ask you to comment. So uh, headline, bidding wars are off the charts as home listings fall to a record low. And three key points that CNBC points out in in, in the article before you get into the copy. Point number one, the primary reason long-time home searchers haven't bought a home yet is because they keep getting outbid, according to the National Association of Home Builders. Point number two, well over half of all buyers, 56%, are facing bidding wars in their offers, according to RedFed survey in January. That's up from 52% in December. And point number three, more than half of homes are now going under contract. In less than two weeks, less than a fortnight, homes are going under contract as soon as they're put up on the market. Brian, what say you? Um, uh, what are you seeing? What are you writing about? And is this true? Is this false? And how does South Florida sort of uh, figure oh, it's, it's out? Absolutely, this story? absolutely true in South Florida. I've been hearing from the local realtors associations that yeah, homes are are being sold within two weeks. About uh, often bidding wars, sometimes even they sell above asking price because of bidding wars. And a lot of times, cash buyers went out, and and now they're they're selling houses to people out of state. Uh, sight unseen. You know, they might only see the house to do a final inspection. Uh, they don't have time to fly in because, you know, by the time you see it and fly in, you know, it's already gone. <laughs> uh, so, nice. yeah, it, it's a lot of competition. 
and but also it's historically low number of people willing to put their their homes on the market so that's that's part of the issue number of people trying to buy there's there's just not a lot of supply especially in houses like 600,000 and, and below got it got it got it um uh John Feckler um, could you sort of comment, keeping in mind and sharing with the audience the situation you went through uh, roughly 10, 12 yeah. years ago when you got yep. when you got into a bidding war yep. for a townhouse and how that process went? And um, yeah. you can sort of compare and contrast what you see going on this time versus uh, last time. I'm very, very interesting that you brought that up because that was the first thing that struck me. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> when, you're, when you're in it yourself, how it affects you personally, Chris, we're going back to 05. You know, during the last cycle, um, I was literally in a bidding war when I bought my um, townhome back in '05, and these were, and interestingly enough, these were you know medium-priced uh, townhomes and condos, nothing special about them. But there was a one of, I'm telling you, you would get to one condo um, or one townhome in my my case, and by the time you got there, there was already um, a stack of of bids on the home. And you would literally lose out. Then you have to race to the next one, to the next one. I didn't realize it because I was not really um, uh, well well educated, let's just say, as far as real estate goes. And here I was getting wrapped up in this this you know this um, cycle of oh my god, I'm going to lose out. In the meantime, we want I want you wind up paying more than the home was worth, like Brian mentioned. And I literally <laughs> paid. Uh, <laughs> I literally got slammed. Um, you know, then before long, you know, then suddenly, uh, you know, getting close to 08, suddenly the, the prices uh, started to tank. And I realized then that I just got, <laughs> I got chipped. I mean, it was a beautiful home, don't get me wrong. I and mean, I lived there for five years, but, you know, I, I definitely bought at the top of the market. Yeah, I got to be no, careful. No, no, you know, you, you were supposed to buy low, sell high, not the other way around. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I paid his famous sell line. He says, I, you know, not me, so. John, um, can you can compare and contrast what you're kind of just carrying and what your vibe is? And granted, you 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 rent now; you you're not owning. Right. But um, right. uh, uh, any any similarities as well as contrast um, uh, uh, differences uh, th this time? At least what you're hearing. Yeah, no, it, it was it, it was enough of a traumatic experience. I stayed away from buying homes after that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've been happy as a renter. I mean, I'm really not seeing. Um, although, you know, it's interesting. I'm wondering how, if the rental market will parallel that as you, as we start going into the COVID situation, you know, pricing and everything else. I'm really curious to what, you know, if there's any kind of a correlation between rentals uh, in Miami uh, and, and, and buying, uh, you know, it, it just, I don't know if it's a totally different animal. I'm no real estate expert, so I'm really just curious about that. I'm an example of why a lot of people aren't putting their homes on the market. So I bought okay. a single-family home in Broward since 2010. I bought low. I bought as we were heading, no. uh, you know, as the housing market was kind of near near the bottom coming out of the last recession. So, so Rub over, it in over, his face. The, <laughs> <laughs> so over the ensuing 11, 11 years, you know, the value of the house went up. And you look and you're like, geez, I could sell my house and get a good amount of money for it. But the problem is, then what? Then I have to buy. And then, well, gee, well, what would I buy? And I, really, I would end up well, I want to buy a nicer house, not the same house. What's the point of selling my house and buying the same thing? You might as well not do it. So, but it's like to buy a nicer house, the, the, the prices of other houses have gone up so much in comparison. So to buy a house that's like way nicer, I'm basically doubling my mortgage payment for a house that's maybe, you know, one extra bedroom. 
you know? So I'm like, this doesn't really make sense, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm getting more, but I'm like, I'm doubling my mortgage to get, like, something slightly better. It doesn't, you know, so it's not comparative, you know? I'm getting a much better yeah. bargain to stay where I am. So I think that's yeah. what a lot of people are, are thinking. They're thinking, yeah, yeah, I could sell my house, but then what? You know, where, yeah. where do I go? What do I buy? You know, if, if I've been in this house a long time, I don't, I won't get the same value for my money. I'll, you know, even with more low mortgage rates help, but not necessarily if you're start thinking of, you know, the, the, maybe the house that was $500,000 five years ago is now, you know, $750,000 and you're thinking about what that costs. You know, that's, that's still a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Great point. Um, story number two. This is a perfect segue to story number two. Story number two comes out of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Mr. Fackler, let's go to you. Headline, these people rushed to buy homes during COVID. Now, I regret <laughs> it. Hot real estate markets across the U.S. led to a number of buyers snapping up homes without performing due diligence. First, Grapper 2, John, I'll read to you. Stella Guan spent months searching for a home to buy, getting outbid again and again in a white-hot real estate market in the suburbs of Los Angeles. Finally, her offer on a beautiful, in air quotes, Santa Clarita um, uh, house was accepted in August, she said. The graphic designer, who's 30, she paid roughly 600 grand for the house. But after sleeping here for only a few nights, she had an unfortunate realization. I was like, in quotes, uh-oh, I hate this house. She recalled, I hate this house so much. Mr. Factor, what do you make of that? Are there buyers with um, uh, remorse and regret out there because uh, they wanted a house, they won, and then they realized, uh, what did I win? Well, you know, the current situation almost sounds a worse situation than I was in in 05. It seems like there's even more panic buying going on right now. You know, at least for me, I was able to shop and look at, physically look at the places before I got screwed. Um, but, you know, it, it, to, <laughs> to, buy a, you know, to buy a place unseen, um, you know, it sounds like a real legitimate uh, panic buying uh, situation going on right now. I, I, I can't even imagine being that 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 you know it's, you know it's funny when I when I bought my townhome back then a lot of people were flipping and there was stipulation when I bought it that you were not allowed to flip the uh, unit or the home for two years so you know you figured hey listen if you if I got screwed maybe I can quickly <laughs> flip this to somebody else but <laughs> yeah, then, yeah you know you're trapped I was trapped back then for two years I couldn't do anything now I don't know if that's because still going on today. Or in this situation, but uh, if there are stipulations where they can't flip, they're really screwed. <laughs> John, let's go to you, but let me read a graph or two from this article before I ask you to comment on this. Um, uh, here's this is coming the Wall Street Journal piece. A house, unlike expensive jewelry or clothing, it can't be returned if the buyer's unhappy with it. So, cardinal rule of home buying is that you shouldn't rush into a purchase. But in 2020, millions of Americans did just that. What to you, John? Well, you know, there was a survey uh, last September by an organization called Lend-Edu, and they, they surveyed homeowners with, um, with an outstanding mortgage and found that 55% of new homeowners regretted taking out a mortgage during the pandemic. So, I mean, you know, there you go. Um, the thing is, is that all of this is fueled by, by fear and greed and, and uh of course, the real estate industry is, is you know, fueling some of that fire with, hey, you know, if you're not buying now, you're missing out and, you know, prices only go up. 
<laughs> and right. know, the sort of fr- the frenzy and and everybody's adding to the fuel. And of course, you know, the Federal Reserve makes it easy because they've lowered interest rates. And, and now, you know, that's that's the big selling point is that, you know, it's basically free money, you know, and you're like you're. You're not uh, you're not being a smart person if you're standing on the sidelines like me renting, <laughs> you know, watching right, this craziness right. go, watching this total craziness go on because I know I'm going to make a stupid decision because you know once once you get into a bidding war you're like you know the emotions take over and you lose you know some some rational thoughts and in, into like. You get wrapped up in the purchase and, and sort of craziness. I, I do want to t- uh, touch base on, on what Brian said earlier about what would he do if he sold his house. Uh, I think I think maybe he, he should sell his house and rent and then wait for those prices to fall. And then he can buy a nicer home for even less than the, than what he sold it for. So I don't know. Maybe that's a way to play the market. If, if prices fall. You know, but but at the same time, when you own a house, you know that monthly mortgage payment is going into your equity, not just going into some landlord's pocket. So that over time it builds you equity and helps you out either way, no matter what you do. I wanted to say one thing about the, the regret ideas. A lot of people re- relocated to other parts of the country during the pandemic, think you know I'm working remotely, so let me move to another state and all that. I'm curious if they'll regret that when things go back to normal. And all of a sudden, everyone, you know, 90% of the office is going into work, and they're the, they're the person who lives, you know, three states away, and no one sees them, and, you know, and they, they feel like the odd person out. Interesting point. That's a that's a very interesting point. Um, okay, guys, uh, story number three. Jean, let's go to you, and, and I sort of picked this story for two reasons. One, um, I think it's very interesting, and it pertains to what's going on, but two – this is actually a prediction I made a couple months back. It comes out of Reuters. It comes out of Reuters. Headline, Florida consumers flabbergasted, in air quotes, as property insurers push for double-digit rate hikes. So here you are. You buy a single-family house in Florida. This is great. You're moving from New York, California, whatever the case may be. Now, all of a sudden, you go to get property insurance, and there are double-digit increases because valuations have gone up so, so much. So, so, John, let me read you the first couple of graphs. Florida property insurers are jacking up rates by double-digit percentages, blaming the hikes on lingering damage from past hurricanes, a wave of litigation, and a law that encourages lawyers to sue by allowing courts to award them big fees. We've heard that before. Here's a second graph, Sean, and then I'll ask you to comment. The rate increases in Florida is the third largest property insurance market among U.S. states are the highest in memory, according to some insurance agents and residents. One danger, they say, is that the new rates could make owning a home in Florida even more unaffordable. What say you, Jean? Well, listen, the the property insurance is the gift that keeps on giving for reporters, business reporters like me. <laughs> I don't I think I, I've written more I think I've written more property insurance stories than just about any kind of uh, you know, business story in my lifetime in Florida reporting on business in Florida. Because you know what? I mean, since Hurricane Andrew, the state has basically subsidized homeowner's insurance with citizens, uh, the state insurer of last resort. And without, without getting into the weeds of it all, I mean, this is, good. this is good for Florida because real estate is the business of Florida and municipalities have an incentive 
to let people live in high-risk areas, coastal areas, because it generates huge tax revenues. So the state decided a long time ago after Hurricane Andrew that it would subsidize essentially Florida's um, property market. And the problem is, is that you know those those costs have have gone up and up and up as we've had more hurricanes, and and the state has decided that they were going to offload a lot of those policies to private insurers and you know now they've allowed property insurers to private property insurers to raise rates and the thing is is that it's not enough to cover the potential for storms and all the private insurers are leaving and sticking sticking a lot of homeowners with citizens which is a lot the insurer of last resort and supposed to be the the priciest option um, so here we go again. I mean, we've been writing about this for 30 years, you know, um, it's, nice. it's the same story. And it, and really what we have to decide is who's going to pay. Is it the taxpayers or is it the property owners? I mean, we got to decide because this we have this weird hybrid system where, you know, if you can't get insurance through the private market, you can go to the state. And, you know, this, this is a system that like, will never work in the long term, but it's what we got. Doesn't it seem like, like every two years the legislature passes like a reform bill and does different yes. changes to it, and they say, oh, the rates are going to go down and we did the reform, and then the rates just go up again. <laughs> well, and, 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 Brian, and Brian, I want to get you to comment, but let me read a graph before you comment. So early on in the lead, if you remember, I said one of the reasons that uh, insurance prices are going up double digit is because of hurricanes. So uh, check out this graph. Although there were no major weather events last year, some insurers are still grappling with claims from Hurricane Irma in 2017. We're in 2021. They're claiming because of the hurricane came rolling through in 17, all of a sudden we got to check up uh, uh, insurance rates double digit in the state of Florida. What to you, Brian? Is this a, um, is this a red herring uh, simply because insurance companies are afraid that as these valuations go up, therefore they're going to be on the hook for even more if a storm does come rolling through, or are there some shenanigans here? Well, listen, there are a couple of law firms that are making very good business about going around uh, finding damage and making claims and getting general contractors and then filing suits against insurance companies and and trying to get damages uh, from them. And, you know, part of the issue is they're they're talking in the legislature about how long after a storm happens do you really have to report it. You know, uh, some are talking about, well, maybe we should make it within one year, you know, you know, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't be able to go back like three, this storm came almost three years ago and now you're doing it. Uh, and then there's also talk about what do you, what do we fix? So the idea is if you, if you, if you have a roof that's 20 years old and it was damaged by a storm, do we pay you the entire full cost of a new roof or do we reduce it because your roof is 20 years old and most likely you needed to replace it within a few years anyway? So that's part of the conversation that, that they're having because right now you know you could have an old roof and there's a little bit of damage and they're like okay full new write write me a check for a full new roof even though you know you were supposed to get an old roof anyway so it's sort of the equivalent of you know you got a, a 15 year old car and it's in an accident and they they buy you a brand a brand new car a 2021 model instead of just you know the value of in the 15 year old car correct correct correct. Um, one one final thought before we go ahead and we take our first commercial break. When I first got here in 1993, Hurricane Andrew had rolled through a year prior, and I still remember hearing about um, uh, people who lived down in the Homestead area 
which in an Android, I think, was a Category 5 um, or so. It came rolling through in 1992, and the damage was so severe that it created devastation, but a lot of people were able to cash in. And I remember locals telling me at the time, they called Hurricane Andrew St. Andrew because it was like Christmas and basically gave everybody free gifts of these overwhelming payments. People took the cash, and then they flew up to Marijuana and Broward County and other parts of the uh, state of Florida. So, um, anyways, that being said, we'll take a commercial break. On the other side of the break, we're going to get into the next three stories, including a story about a uh, condo hotel project breaking ground in downtown Miami, uh, written by Brian, as well as this idea that maybe there needs to be a moratorium on taxes and foreclosures in a different part of the state. And we're also going to talk about people getting evicted, even though there's a moratorium in place. So stay tuned. We'll catch up with you on the other side of the break. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Back in 1995, I got my real estate license, but I didn't practice for a number of years simply because I was writing about real estate as a journalist. 2006, I broke out and I launched a company called Condo Vultures. The idea was to try to use information uh, data and know-how to try to get the best deals on behalf of buyers. So if you are a buyer and you're looking for a deal, you're looking to try to understand the condo market in the Tri-County, South Florida area, myself or my team are here to help you to get a hold of us. Please call us at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com. If you're enjoying the Condo Vultures podcast, and you want more information, but this information in the written word as well as charts, why not sign up for the software distressed market intelligence report? To do so, go to condovulturesrealty.com. Slightly below the main banner and logo, you will see a sign-up box. It's called the South Florida Distressed Market Intelligence Report. Sign up. Simply enter your email address, hit subscribe, and lo and behold, every week you'll be sent a newsletter giving you the latest updates on what's going on in the distressed market in South Florida. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. I got Brian Bandel, senior reporter over at the South Florida Business Journal. He's also an author, published three books. We have Jean Groose. Jean was a journalist for over 25 years, including a gig at the Tampa Tribune. Right now, he does public relations marketing for his own firm called Groose Communication. And then finally, we got John Fackler. John used to write about white collar crime as well as publicly traded companies at the South Florida Business Journal. Right now, he does um, public relations and marketing for his own firm. So, guys, let's get to story number four. This is going to come out of NPR. John uh, Fackler, I want to go to you. Headline, renters are getting evicted despite the CDC order. I'm scared, somebody told one of the reporters. John, I'll read you the first couple graphs. Sheila Ambert lies awake at night wondering if her family's about to get tossed out on the street. In quote, she says, as a mother, you feel like you failed your kids, Ambert said. You don't have them, uh, you don't want them having to go through that or even knowing about it, which they do. Ambert thought she would be protected under an order issued back in September by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that's supposed to stop people from getting evicted and forced into homeless shelters or crowded living situations where COVID-19 spreads more easily. Already one study has found that evictions may have caused thousands of additional deaths because of displaced families catching or spreading COVID-19. What say you, Mr. Feckler? Um, there's this patchwork of moratoriums that are put in place about evictions. It has to do with you, you know, who the borrower is, uh, yada, yada, yada. Some people just uh, uh, I've heard of landlords basically threatening uh, uh, tenants to get out. Um, uh, uh, so what, what say you, Mr. Feckler? Well, the issue here, because um, this was a really jarring story, <clears throat> the more details I read about it, um, is there's a lack of enforcement. Um, I don't know if it's because the courts are all jammed up or what, but there's no enforcement um, of the moratoriums. And what's happening is 
you know, the landlords are going to get away with what they can get away with. So, you know, I mean, until there's a national, federal, um, and forget guidelines. I mean, there has to be some real guidance with uh, penalties attached to it from the feds, uh, Biden, in, uh, especially Biden in his new plan. Uh, it's got to come out strong. It's got to come out stronger with, with threats of, you know, in, uh, of enforcement, um, for people violating uh, the moratorium uh, statutes, because until that happens, people are going to get away with what they can get away with, especially the landlords. I mean, listen, you know, they have to make money too. I mean, there's a certain amount of uh, uh, issues there. Uh, they, they, you know, they, for them to uh, make money, I mean, everybody has to make money. They have to pay their bills too. But, you know, this is some of those uh, stories were chilling. Um, and let's, let's face it, uh, we're coming up to this, uh, a point now where we have the new stimulus package coming, and then maybe you delay. You know, Biden's trying to get all the Republicans on board. That's not looking good right now. Apparently, there's zero Republicans on board. Now, what happens if the stimulus pl- uh, package gets delayed? And you're going to start seeing more of these um, uh, evictions, and there's nothing, you know, to hold hold the line, so to speak, because people are getting kicked out because there's no there's no enforcement. True, true, true. Um, John, I want, I want to get you to comment, but let me just point out a couple of things. We, we discussed a couple of weeks back a Miami Herald article talking about 50, close to 50,000 cases for evictions have been filed in the state of Florida from March through December 31st of 2020. These were uh, actions that had been initiated, but based on the people still in their homes. Now, um, from this particular story, John, it says Amber, remember, that was the, uh, the lead uh, person who's being um, talked about in this article, says she, she knew about the rules and she followed them in court filings. She says she gave the required paperwork from the CDC to her landlord. Renters are also supposed to try to make partial rent payments. She did that, too, she told the court. Tenants are supposed to try to get rental assistance. She told the court she did that as well. Even so, she still got evicted. John, um, what say you? Is the landlord a big bad landlord, or uh, you know, is there blame to be uh, shared? Well, I mean, you know, without without knowing the specifics of the case, uh, other than from the news article, I mean, it looks like she had done everything right. But you know, there there are ways that landlords are getting around some of this stuff, um, and you know, unfortunately, every time you impose some kind of regulation like this, there's going to be loopholes, and you know, but you got to hire an attorney, you know, and who's got money for that? So, but the interesting thing in the story was that there was a reference to the eviction lab at Princeton University, and if you actually Google the eviction lab at Princeton University, it's very interesting. They're actually tracking all the evictions by state. And, and it's, it's just a, really a great um, sort of uh, dive into some of the data. And you can see where some of the areas um, are where there are more evictions than, than others. And surprisingly, I was expecting Florida to be a big eviction state, but it's not. Um, you know, there are bigger ones like Virginia and the Carolinas, um, a lot more evictions up there per capita than there are down here. So that's kind of, I find that to be very interesting because, you know, obviously in the last cycle um, in Florida during the last recession, I mean, there were um, many, many more evictions. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not sure what that says. If that's like we're waiting for the tsunami of evictions or, you know, what's, what's coming down the pike, but, you know, um, it's, it's, I find, I find that very interesting. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah a lot okay, of local so officials can stop evictions by telling the sheriff department basically not to enforce the writ. So in some local jurisdictions, that has happened. Well, and, and sort of uh, piling on with that, with that Brian, uh, we, we talked about last week on the podcast that uh, Miami-Dade uh, Circuit Court was going to begin uh, trials in on March 1st. Now, granted, they've been doing it over Zoom, but they're actually moving back to uh, putting people, putting jurors, putting um, uh, both sides as well as the judges in the actual courthouses. So you got to imagine that the thing is just going to get picked up um, unless steps are taken. Now, story number five. John, we'll, we'll stick with you. This is coming out of um, a, a publication called the M Live, which is basically a combination of a variety of different publications in Michigan. Uh, this particular story appeared in what should be the Ann Arbor News. Ann Arbor News, and it doesn't have anything to do with Florida, but this is something to sort of consider. Here's the headline. Tax foreclosure moratorium enacted for occupied uh, Washington County properties. First couple graphs. Washington County Treasurer Catherine McCleary has declared a moratorium from tax foreclosures for occupied properties this year. The difficulty small businesses, landlords, and homeowners have faced in the last year led to McCleary amending the financial hardship policy to withdraw all occupied properties from tax foreclosure. So, uh, John, what say you? If somebody's living in a home, and, uh, you know, they're out of work because of everything going on with COVID. And lo and behold, they're, they're covering their mortgage, but they fall behind on their taxes. They might be for, uh, facing foreclosure. Up in Michigan, one county at least, has taken steps to uh, give people some reassurance that they're not going to get kicked out on the street. Is that good or is that bad? What, what say yeah, you? I mean, because remember, these counties, they, they, they use the property taxes to pay for services. Yeah, I mean, look, um, if you're going to impose an eviction moratorium, what are you going to do to help the small mom and pop landlords who depend on on rent payments to pay taxes and uh, and everything else? So, I mean, they're not getting any relief. And apparently in this county, it looks like they are starting to get relief. But I wouldn't um, <laughs> I wouldn't expect it to become widespread. I don't think a lot of municipalities are going to say, ah, you don't got, you don't have to pay your taxes. Don't worry about it. We won't do anything about it. I mean, I, the likelihood of that happening, I mean, it's pretty remote, I think. And, and, and Brian, what, uh, what, what do you think of that? I mean, keep in mind, in Florida, generally speaking, 2% of your uh, purchase price is your property tax bill each and every year if you're not homesteaded. So if you're not a Florida resident living in a property, you're looking at the such value going, you know, your taxes being 2% a year of um, uh, 2% of what the, what, what the value is uh, each and every year. And with this huge run-up in prices, that could be uh, the death knell for some um, some homeowners who aren't – or some owners who aren't homesteaded. What's, um, what, what do you think, Brian? Well, it's it's going to be hard for a lot of the uh, municipalities to not to give people time off uh, and pass on paying property taxes. The property tax is the big source of revenue for our governments here. Remember, Florida doesn't have income tax for, for individuals. So the really property taxes and sales tax are the big way. You t- and so for the local governments, property tax is a bigger part of that. So uh, they might give people more time, but it's going to be hard for them to say, don't pay it at all. Maybe they could give them time. But, you know, there are, you know, there are people who they maybe don't pay it for a year and, you know, they pay it, they make it up next year and they, they you know, they might be able to stall them and something like that. But I don't certainly don't think they're going to get it all. They're going to, get it completely written off. But I'll, but I should also note, note that businesses are in the same situation. You might have a hotel that pays property tax or, or ta- you know, or, or, and taxes on their dwellings and the hotel was closed for a long time or has its business diminished. And they're also asking cities for a, for a break. 
You know, you can imagine a Miami Beach, you know, they don't have homestead exemptions on their property. So paying property, you know, paying property tax on a property on Lincoln Road is a heck of a lot of money. Yes, it is. And and I did a podcast um, uh, right before the tax appeal season uh, began, which is uh, uh, in September, effectively. Um, and what I can tell you, my, my recollection from that podcast is if you do not pay your property taxes, what happens is there's a reverse auction that occurs. So some investor can come in and they can actually cover your property tax. And it's reverse auction means the interest rate. So if it's a great property, everyone's going to um, uh, potentially uh, want to do it. So they're willing to accept a very low interest rate. So the rates go down. And, and a property that might be a real clunker, uh, nobody's going to want it. So therefore, you can you can buy it. So you can buy the, the tax certificate against it, and you're paying and you're going to be getting uh, much more of an interest rate in return. So um, uh, in my recollection, is if two years of non-payment of these of your property taxes and tax certificates issued, somebody who owns the certificate who basically has covered your property taxes, they can then move to foreclose to take title to your property. So effectively, you're looking at about a three-year period ultimately where you're in arrears uh, before a property can be taken. And for what it's worth, guys. You guys have never seen the movie uh, Blues Brothers, and I'm dating myself, going back to the mm -hmm. late 70s and early 80s. Blues Brothers was about a tax certificate for the church, for the church. Uh. So um, um, uh, that being said, let's go ahead. We'll get to story number six. Uh, we're going to go to Brian Bandell on this story. And the reason we're going to Brian is he wrote this piece. He wrote the piece, and this is actually something to keep in, uh, 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 pay attention to, this particular story, because it might be the beginning of a new trend. So here is the headline in the first couple graphs, and then I'll ask Brian to just go ahead and fill in some of the blanks and give us the overview. Headline, Home Share Focus Nativo Condo Hotel Breaks Ground in Miami. This is the first major condo breakdown in the city this year. Brian, what can you tell us about the Nativa? What can you tell us about its previous developer who, uh, in reading your article, I guess doesn't really have anything to do with it? And um, uh, what, what's your overall perspective on this, uh, if you will? Yeah. It's beautiful writing, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yes, the, the, the Nativa uh, is a very interesting mix of con uh, here. You have regular condominiums, but while uh, these encourage short-term rentals. So in a lot of condo buildings, they have a policy where you can only rent it out for for perhaps like a year to uh, to people because they don't want it to become an Airbnb paradise. But here they're actually encouraging Airbnb or whichever home sharing platform you want. And in this case, the the owner has created a home sharing platform called Nativo you can use that'll manage it. Um, and so here, you know, you could ha you could live there, and perhaps your neighbor will be changing every single day because it's being um, home shared. Uh, then another group of units will be the Gal, which is a hotel brand owned by uh, by Menin, well, the co-developer here. Uh, and so about but part of some of the units in the Gal will be standard hotel, and some of them will be condo hotels. So investors will own them and kind of put them in the pool and stay there, you know, maybe a few days a year and all that. But 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 most of the time they'll be rented out. Um, and then you also have office condos. Uh, called Creative HQ that'll be built into the parking deck. So you have a bunch of people. If you want, you could buy buy your own office and occupy it, or buy it and uh, rent it out, or lease lease the office space from whoever owns it. And then of course they'll have some uh, some great restaurants there. They'll have a fitness club, and and whoever's in the building, whether you're a short term renter, an owner, or a hotel guest, or an office user, you can use all those uh, all those amenities in the fitness club and all that. And you can go to the pool. So instead of having your exclusive residence-only pool, it'll be sort of residents plus hotel guests, office users, <laughs> whoever. 
uh, pool. So <laughs> it's sort of like it's a condo, but for people who are very, very uh, social, uh, you could say. It's not, not like the kind that's gated and exclusive, but more like, you know, uh, inv- kind of in- inviting a whole bunch of different people there. And, you, know, you know, any day you, you don't know who you could, you don't know who you'll see. If that's the kind of place it'll be. Got it, got it, got it. And now, now, Brian, the project was originally announced to be related and affiliated with Airbnb, the publicly traded home sharing company that sort of um, uh, uh, comes to everybody's attention. Um, but that developer, from what I understand from your piece, uh, he's no longer involved. Yeah, I mean, Harvey Hand, uh, Hernandez uh, and New Guard Group, they were the, the original uh, developers who announced this. Now, Men and his team and the Galbert family, they were also on board originally, too. But kind of Hernandez was the guy who was kind of in public making statements, talking about the deal with Airbnb and all that. Uh, but then some litigation happened with Airbnb and Hernandez, uh, and they kind of they eventually settled it. But now it seems like Hernandez is uh, no longer front and center in this project. He's no longer like an uh, I mean, out front as a developer, although he does own the Nativo name because he built some uh, rental projects around the around. They use Nativo, including an apartment complex in Orlando that called Nativo that is basically a home sharing slash apartment complex. So they're, so the developers, uh, Menon and Galbert, are licensing the um, Nativo name from him, using that for the kind of the home sharing management platform. But but they're really the the ones behind it. Hernandez is not uh, not the leader of this anymore, from from what I can gather. Got it, got it, got it. And then, uh, Brian, one last um, um, uh, question about related to the story. Um, first first uh, new construction project uh, to begin in 2021. How significant um, uh, is that? Is this a, a, an anomaly? Is this the beginning of a trend? What, uh, what, what are you thinking and what are your sources? Well, it's interesting. Obviously, the amount of groundbreak, groundbreaking has really slowed down. We had a boom for a while. There's a lot of condo construction. Now it's kind of tapering off. The market was oversupplied, and now we're getting to a point where there's not a lot of new condos left to complete. They're all, all the ones under construction are almost done. Uh, the units and buildings that are done, a lot of them are sold already, uh, so there's less and less to pick from. Uh, so now developers are thinking about that and like, hmm, you know what? After this current crop of buildings are, are done, there'll be nothing. So if you start a project now and it takes three or four years to complete, I, you know, I'm opening, and I might be the only game in town. So uh, that, that's what the, that's what they're thinking. So I, I do believe you'll see some more projects coming up in the right locations with the right product type to try and capitalize on, you know, uh, the fact that there are fewer units out there. But the trends will have to be a little different because the buyers today are a little different than the buyers were uh, three or four years ago. That's for sure. And, and Mr. Fackler, I want you to comment on this, especially given the fact um, I think it was last week or the prior week, um, we actually talked about a uh, condo going up in sort of the same ballpark neighborhood, which is at Miami World Center, which is effectively west of Biscayne Boulevard between the core of downtown Miami as well as the MacArthur Causeway, uh, the project we discussed last week or the prior week. That was called 11, and it was linked to the cabaret. Don't call it a strip joint. Call it a cabaret. Uh, this one's down the block. It's a few blocks down the block, but it's not located on the chain. It's not located on the water. John, what do you think the likelihood is uh, that someone's going to want to go ahead and invest in a project like this that's n- not on the water and basically is in, um, you know, in the middle of, uh, of that particular neighborhood? Well, first of all, I think the whole concept um, 
of the Airbnb style is uh, brilliant. Uh, we we actually had talked about this many months ago about you know Latin American visitors. What a, what a perfect situation if they don't want to buy a place they can rent it. You know, come in here and rent for a couple months. But um, I was always you know, listen. I had an apartment at one point downtown and I tried to Airbnb my place out. Of course, I got caught. So I guess my question <laughs> was, <laughs> yeah, my luck. But my question to Brian is. Regulatory wise, um, is Miami a city that allows Airbnb? And I guess the second part of the question would be, you know, thinking about these people renting um, this, excuse me, uh, Airbnb, these pla- is it a concept? Is the Airbnb brand involved or is it just a concept, an Airbnb concept? that they'll be doing because they're dropping the Airbnb name all the time here. Um, yeah. Uh, so one in this particular zoning category of Miami, it is allowed in that ty- in that zoning okay. category in that type of building. Um, you, okay. you can do that with, with, uh, with a condo, as long as the condo mm-hmm. association documents allow it, of course. Uh, now right. they are not officially affiliated with Airbnb. Originally, it was supposed to be. Okay. It was called Nativo, powered by Airbnb. But since the litigation yeah. settled, uh, they're no, uh, no they're no longer using the name Airbnb uh, as gotcha. part of their official marketing. They're using Nativo, and it's basically you can use you could put it on a home sharing platform, whether that be Airbnb or any any other platform that's similar. But the Nativo is going to manage it for you. So what that means mm-hmm. is, say, say you live in New York and you have this Airbnb, this unit, and you're putting it on Airbnb. Well, before ever, mm-hmm. anyone gets there, you need to clean the sheets, you need to replace the shampoo, mop the floors, do all the stuff you need to do before the next tenant goes. Right? They'll do that for you. You pay them mm-hmm. something, and the building manager will take care of all of that. They'll make sure it's ready. They'll check the person in. You know, they'll they'll manage it for you. Because obviously, if you're not in town. You're not going to fly in every time, you know, you need to do that. So th- yeah. that's kind of the, the value add that, that they're doing. And then, you know, and they're giving you the flexibility. You can put it on whosoever platform you feel like. Nice. Got it, got it, got it. I, I, hey, I love it. Mr. Fackler, um, uh, you said something interesting. You said you got caught running the Airbnb. Everyone, <laughs> in the, everyone listening wants to know a little bit more color about, the, about right. this particular story. What? What can you share uh, with us? And did they arrest you? Did they kick you out of the building? Um, and how often did they change the sheets and clean clean the place? Like Brian said, that this uh, Nativo operation was really, really <laughs> Yeah, it got kind of dicey. I was able to uh, Airbnb it out three times. Um, and, of course, each time someone came in, it was always a nightmare. You know, someone was complaining. Somebody came in, was eating, left pizza boxes all over. So, it, it, you know, I'm not the type to, you know, it wasn't for me. But that said, mm-hmm. um, you know, what happened was I would Airbnb it out when we had the uh, music conference. What, what's the big music conference every year? Ultra. So people ultra. Would, yeah, ultra. So people would pay a huge amount of money. So I figured, all right, what the hell, you know? And um, eventually the <laughs> the uh, property owners uh, somehow were on to the fact that people, were, you know, were, were renting out their rooms, Airbnb, and... Um, they they caught they called me on it. They said no 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 you can't do it. So I just stopped doing it. But other people in the building were doing it too. And and of course I I wasn't an owner. I was a renter. So um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like what the hell? I'm renting to you, and now you're making more money. Like no no no. no, no, no. I'm the one who's supposed to make money renting this place. <laughs> 
No, it was definitely in my John, household. But I, do, do you recall how much you were getting per night during Ultra when you were renting out a, a room in your apartment? Close to 200 a, a night, which was, you know. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a little studio. You know, it wasn't like a big apartment. I mean, it was a one-bedroom, you know. And uh, so I'd give them the bedroom, and I would sleep on the couch. And um, <laughs> you could imagine that was all that didn't work. So. <laughs> Fantastic, guys. Let's go ahead. We'll take our uh, next commercial break. On the other side of the break, I'm going to ask all of the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction. So stay tuned. We'll catch up with you on the other side. This is Peter Zaliski of the Condo Vultures podcast. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. And I wanted to alert you that if you have a property that you're looking to sell in the Tri-County, South Florida area, I would encourage you to reach out to Jenny Hortus, a licensed real estate broker with CVRRealty.com. She's my partner. She's been in the business for uh, north of 15 years. More importantly, she knows the market. She knows how to get a deal done. And she also realizes that it's more important to get a price that you can accept and sell the property rather than to hold firm on some price that's never going to be achieved and ultimately languish on the market. So if you're looking to do a deal that you want a skilled expert who can help you sell a property, reach out to Jenny Hortis at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit her website, cvrrealty.com. If you're listening to this podcast, think about who else is. If you want to reach that crowd, which tends to be investors, buyers, developers, lenders, why not advertise on the Condo Vultures podcast? To do so, give us a call at the office, 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. We're having a conversation about some of the stories that uh, come out within the last week or so that could have a bearing on the local economy as well as real estate market. Now I want to ask the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction based on something that you, the listener, ought to keep your eye on that might be coming down the pike uh, sooner rather than later. So let's start off with John Fackler. Mr. Fackler, I always like to start with you because um, you know, your predictions always tend to be uh, – they don't play out, so – a good idea what people should uh, uh, do the opposite of. So maybe we can reverse that trend, especially for tricky. <laughs> so, what, what, what say you, Mr. Fackler? And please relate it to Airbnb because I want to hear more about you running an Airbnb. But what, what, what is your prediction this week? No, this this one's not related to Airbnb or real estate. So sorry about that. But um, my prediction going forward it is related to COVID. So uh, my prediction is that. My governor, Andrew Cuomo, will be forced to resign his governorship after the scale broke where he was underreporting COVID cases or COVID deaths. Governor in nursing homes. Governor of New York. Governor of New yes. York. You, you live in Florida, yes. though, so he's your he, – no, it's, it's where you used to live. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I'm originally okay. from New York, and you know, I was a big Cuomo fan, but I think this – he had a big press conference today where he was trying to do the whole – you know, the thing with the, um, uh, uh, the visuals and, you know, this and that, and, and, you know, he's admitted making mistakes, but I think it's it's going to be too much of a scandal and that he's going to be forced to resign. And what, is that, what does that say for the state of Florida? Is there any, could there be any repercussions uh, down here in the state of Florida? Everybody uh, who sort of follows what's been going on with the COVID numbers in Florida knows that there was a data right. scientist who basically was fired from the right. state of Florida based on statistics and numbers. And that sort of played out uh, based on the accuracy of the numbers. So, could you see any link uh, between uh, that? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, was, I hadn't thought of that. That's actually a very interesting link because, you know, there's been some rumor mongering that um, DeSantis, the governor here, has been under-reporting the numbers as well. And, you know, when this uh, data scientist came out and reported these numbers, that the numbers are off, uh, they eventually went after the feds, went after and raided her home. So, you know, DeSantis doesn't play. play no, no, I think that was kind of state. State, 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 uh, state authorities. State. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. the state. Yeah, yeah. Not, not, not the feds, not the feds. I'm sorry, sorry. yeah. Okay, um, uh, Jean Gruss, what say you? Your, your predictions tend to be dead on. Uh, what, what are you predicting uh, this particular week? Well, when Cuomo resigns, he's going to move to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, uh, my prediction, my prediction is that uh, Elon Musk, the entrepreneur, is going to build a tunnel under the Miami River at Brickell Avenue. And we're going to pay him in Bitcoin. That's my prediction. <laughs> well, Brian, John, how many times have we heard about a tunnel in uh, the Brickle, under the Brickell Avenue Bridge in, in Miami? I mean, I can, you know, what is it, 20 years I've been hearing about a tunnel in um, uh, for the Brickell <laughs> Avenue Bridge? A a am I wrong about that? Or I mean, they've been talking about it for a while. Supposedly, he figured out how to build the tunnel uh, cheaper. So we'll, we'll see. I, I know that. We're a little more challenging to build a tunnel in than Los Angeles, you know, because um, we got a lot of uh, water down there. So <laughs> they're they're a little a uh, little higher above sea water uh, sea level in Los Angeles. Yeah, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, true. Uh, Mr. Bendel, what what do you see coming down the pike? Uh, I remember one of your predictions previously. You predicted that homes, residences in the future, they would have Zoom rooms, actual green rooms dedicated so people could. Um, they can either do their schoolwork, they can do their, 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 their business work, any of that type of stuff. So Zoom Room, that was something that sort of stuck in my mind. Um, what, what do you see coming down the pike uh, right now as we sit here in February of 2021? Well, I'm thinking about what kind of condo projects are going to be launching uh, this coming year. And, and I think you're going to see more large unit projects. Uh, we're talking about like three-bedroom type of uh, condos. Uh, the reason I believe that is I'm hearing a lot of people moving down here from the north, up north, are coming with their whole family. And, and you know, a one-bedroom studio is not enough. And if you look at a lot of the new condos being built, they're very heavy on one bedroom. You know, um, some of them may be two bedrooms, but, but that's because they were sold mostly to Latin American investors who just wanted to buy and rent them out uh, to a lot of lost single people. But when families want to go there, especially when, some of those people are working from home and, you know, you have two people, they don't want to work in the same room. Uh, they're going to need more rooms. You know, they're coming with kids. They're going to want rooms for their kids. So uh, I think if, if developers are trying to appeal to these, these uh, relocating domestic residents, they're going to go bigger. So you're going to see to, uh, the total number of units will be lower, but the units themselves will be bigger. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so we're going to see larger units. And, and Brian, do you think that's going to be on the mainland and on the barrier island? Because a lot, a lot of the bigger units tend to be on the barrier island, not as many necessarily on the mainland, except for a, a few projects. So do you see it um, widespread, uh, both sides of the uh, of the bay or the intercoastal? Well, I, I, I make, the strategy makes the most sense in, obviously, luxury neighborhoods that are highly de desirable. So the, the beaches of uh, Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm, Palm Beach as well, Delray Beach, as well, uh, places like Coconut Grove, Coral Gables, West Palm Beach. So, so these are places that are more uh, desirable to live. Although potentially in some of the 
suburban markets as well that are desirable, like Doral and Weston, places that are more bedroom communities that are highly desirable, people might want to go in there with their families, but they need something larger. So instead of saying, well, I'm going to go to Doral and build a 150 units that will be mostly one bedroom, you know, I'm going to go and maybe I'll build 60 units that are mostly, you know, twos and threes. Interesting, interesting. Okay, all right. Um, um, for my prediction, and this one, uh, um, again, I'm going to date myself again. Um, about 20 years ago or so, Miami-Dade County had a mayor who People Magazine called the sexiest mayor in the United States. <laughs> and this guy was getting all kinds of attention. They considered him uh, Bill Clinton uh, – no, excuse me, uh, what is it, Al Gore uh, was considering him for a possible VP candidate. That was Alex Pinellas. He was a sexy mayor. He got a lot of attention, ultimately being named that. Now, where am I going with this? Well, we have a mayor in Miami, the city of Miami. The last mayor, the sexy mayor, was the county. This mayor is the city of Miami. This is Francis Suarez, and Francis Suarez has been getting a lot of attention. He sent a tweet to Elon Musk, and Elon Musk uh, jumped on it, came to Miami, talking about building this um, this bridge, or excuse me, this tunnel underneath the Brooklyn Avenue Bridge. Uh, uh, Mr. Suarez was just recently in Washington, invited by the Biden administration to come up and talk about COVID, things like that. It seems like Francis Suarez, who's uh, 30s or so, is getting a lot of attention. He's catching headlines. He's, his pictures tend to be everywhere. I predict that in 2021, Mr. Suarez is going to be named one of the sexiest mayors in all of this nation, all of this land, as a result of all the attention that he's getting and his, uh, uh, the, his good luck. So that's my prediction. We're going to see a lot more of Francis Suarez in 2021. So Who puts out the sexy mayor list? list? <laughs> is that you, Peter? Is that your list? No, 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 it's not my list. But if you remember, People Magazine, People Magazine oh, called Alex Pinellas the sexiest mayor okay. in all of the land about 20 years ago or so. And there, there's a uh, journalist down here, longtime journalist, uh, Jim DeFeedy. And every time Jim would make a record, he used to be a, a columnist for the Herald. He worked for the New Times. Right now he has a gig with CBS uh, Television, the local affiliate. He always used to refer to Alex Pinellas as our sexy mayor. And as I'm seeing Francis Suarez's uh, picture and hearing his quotes everywhere, it makes me think that Francis Suarez is on that, uh, you know, he's in the express lane headed for that type of stardom. Uh, uh, nationally, from my perspective. So, well, I, th- hey, I think we're going to get some good tweets, uh, tweets tonight uh, after this airs. <laughs> yeah, it, there you go. Um, guys, we'll take a commercial break. On the other side of the break, we're going to go ahead and we're going to get into the comments. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Before I started doing these podcasts, I basically was in the business of being a licensed real estate broker, a contributing um, columnist for the Miami Herald, as well as the Miami Real Deal but also expert witness work in consulting. So if you are looking for an expert witness or if you're looking for consulting services, a straight talk perspective as to what's going on in a particular marketplace, a building, or what happened previously for whatever your situation is, whether you are an attorney, whether you are an institutional fund looking to invest, or whether you're a lender who's trying to come up with some sort of strategy and approach uh, for your lending committee going forward, I just might be able to help you to get a hold of me. Please uh, reach out to Peter at condovultures.com. That's Peter at condovultures.com. Or give me a call to the office at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. I got Brian Bandell. I have John Gruth. I have John Feckler. 
Uh, we talked about six headlines that have occurred uh, within the last week that could have an impact or bearing on the local economy as well as real estate markets. And then asked the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction. Now it's about your opportunity as a listener to go ahead and spout off about something. You like us, you dislike us, you want to compliment, you want to criticize, you want to ask a question. We want to hear from you. If you do want to send a comment, send an email to inquire at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. Every Wednesday during our reporters' roundtable, we read your comments on air and we discuss them. Mr. Fackler, we have a comment from our loyal listener and commenter up in the Treasure Coast called Ilya. Is that correct? That's correct. Ilya from the Treasure Coast has a comment. And what does Ilya have to say? Ilya, first he wanted to comment on the roundtable. As you know, Ilya is um, a very loyal listener. He listens to all the podcasts, including your specialties. Um, but he mentioned he wanted to mention that he enjoyed the uh, round table immensely. Hats off to you, gentlemen. Um, but he wanted to concentrate on this idea of people not paying rent. Uh, he says he deals with landlords. Uh, he helps them get tenants. He monitors, you know, what they do. And he says he thinks we're missing one crucial point here, that the majority of the people who stop paying rent is because they lost their employment. And it's an old problem. It's not so much just because of COVID. It's because it's in, uh, a lot of jobs have been already lost. Um, he says that in his neck of the woods, uh, uh, rents jumped approximately 20%, 20% within the last year. Uh, there's no inventory. And an influx of, of new blood coming in from all over. Um, so he just you know, figures people can't pay their bills, and that's you know, what a majority of the people um, are just out of work, and that's really what's going on here. And finally, he says it's going to be an interesting year, probably still as weird as 2020, with plenty of unknowns. And the virus is not going anywhere. It will continue to mutate, and we will need to establish and improve the existing system of getting vaccines and re-vaccinated forever. Uh, a little bit of <laughs> normally, uh, Illy is a little on the more positive side, but that's his uh, comments. Okay, so so uh, Brian, John Fackler, John Fackler, are, are we being too cynical about the renters not paying the rent? Uh, do they really need help, or 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 are, are we uh, uh, jumping to conclusions that they're hustling the system? What 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 do you guys think? I think most renters yeah. who aren't paying rent are really really need help. I I think that they generally people want to pay rent. They want to be self sufficient. They want to pay their bills. They don't want to be afraid of being kicked out. And if the number of people just have either lost their jobs or they're working less than they previously, you know, had, maybe they their hours are down and uh, and they're hoping, you know, things haven't come come back quite quite as fast uh, for them. So yeah, I think there's there's there is real pain out there, and and a lot of people are hoping that uh, the government stimulus will give them some more time. Particularly the yeah, working yeah, class yeah. and middle class, you know, I think the uh, uh, the upper classes are a little bit more protected. So, you know, everybody else is on the front line. And, John, you have any? Well, um, I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think Ilya brings up, actually, well, actually, Ilya brings up a good point. There, we have an influx of population that that is constantly coming into this area. And so, and and a lot of these people, you know, do have jobs and and they are able to pay and i think maybe uh ilia is suggesting that um it's it's not as dire a situation as we 
are sometimes led to believe. So um, that's kind of an interesting theory. I, I um, you know, the, the constant influx of new people and obviously maybe up in the treasure coast, there's like a, there's, there's really tight, it's a really tight renters market. So, um, you know, it's, I, and they've been able to increase rents up there. So that's, that's very interesting to hear. Um, I think in, um, in Miami further south, uh, the rents have, have actually fallen. So, um, yeah, interesting perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's really the, the, the people that are coming in that are making money are doing well, but it's, this, is, this, is, this isn't like the last recession where almost everyone was hit. Some people are affected a lot, and some people are affected not at all, and some people are, are doing even better. So some people are able to come in, bid up prices, and do great. Other, and that's just making things harder for other people because not only are they losing money because they lost a job, but now rent is higher, buying a home is higher. So it's just calling, uh, it's just making an even bigger uh, divide here between you know the haves and the have-nots here. Absolutely, I totally agree with Brian on that one. I I, I would just add, um, um, you know, I, I'm very skeptical when I hear about rental data, and the reason is, is there's no third party basically that's tracking this stuff. That like when when you do a real estate transaction, there, there's a deed that's recorded, there's taxes that are paid. When you do a lease. Nothing is recorded anywhere, so as a result of that, um, people record and say whatever they want, and there's no way to push back on it. It's uh, it's like you know talking about what the weather's going to be. You you just don't have any sense. And given the fact that a lot of corporate owners of rental towers, you know, three, four hundred, uh, one hundred units, they're not using realtors because they don't want to pay a commission. So therefore, their stuff never makes it to the multiple listing service, which is the database that realtors use. Only those people who are willing to pay a commission, they go in the MLS. The corporate owners with the big signs that say now leasing, move-ins, ratio, that stuff is not reflected. And each and every time you roll in there, you're cutting a different, uh, you're cutting rent space on different terms. It's much like it reminds me of these COVID uh, vaccines. Every country is cutting its own deal for its own pricing on COVID vaccines uh, throughout the world. So you don't know what, what really what the marketplace is because it's all confidential. And I would just tell you, keep that in mind when you, when you hear about rental data and what people are telling you about it, there's no way to push back and say that's correct, that's wrong, because there's no documentation. Unlike real estate transactions, you can actually look up the deed. So that would just be the thought I would say when you're, when you're dealing with rental data. So uh, that being said, anybody want to add anything before we shut this podcast down? Nope. Okay, hearing nothing. That was Brian Bandell. Brian's a senior reporter over at the South Florida Business Journal. He's been a journalist for close to 20 years, including 17 years over the South Florida Business Journal. He has three published uh, books. Brian, what are the names of the books in case any of the listeners want to look them up uh, and, and purchase them? So uh, I have uh, a novel called Mute and Silence the Living. There's some great sci-fi uh, stories, including about a story about a woman that has an alien virus. Uh, inside her bloodstream. She's trying not to infect people. And then I have another story called Famous After Death. That's about murder gone viral. Uh, teenagers in South Florida uh, playing pranks that result in death and posting them online for uh, notoriety. Uh, and uh, and if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at Brian Bandel, two L's. There you go. And that's Brian Bandel. We also have Jean Groose. Jean runs a publication marketing firm called Groose Communications. He was a journalist for 25 years, primarily in the state of Florida, including a gig at the Tampa Tribune. And finally, we have John Fackler. John worked over the South Florida Business Journal, where he covered white-collar crime as well as publicly traded companies based in Florida. And I'm Peter Zalewski. I want to remind you, if you're not a subscriber to the podcast, go ahead and do so wherever you're listening to your podcast. 
And please leave us a rating as well as a comment. Those ratings and comments, they help us to sort of spread our message and help us to try to accomplish our mission, which is bringing straight talk to an overhyped real estate market. And then finally, if you have any comments for us, send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com. I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy. Hopefully, we're all going to get vaccinated sooner rather than later, and we will catch up soon. Ciao, ciao.